Welcome to the Centerpoint Vineyard Podcast. We're a church on Sydney's northern beaches, seeing lives transformed by Jesus. We hope you enjoy this message. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jonathan. Uh, We're finishing a four-part series this week called Add to Multiply, Preparing for Growth. And we've been over the last few weeks looking at multiplication and talking a little bit about what we sense God is asking us to step into as a church. And so we said in week one that we feel called to be a church that's family. We want to be a church that leans into being naturally supernatural. We want to be a church that worships Jesus. And this morning was another prime example of just what God is doing amongst us. It was a really holy moment, particularly at the end of that worship set. And ultimately, we want to see lives transformed. And we mentioned that we want to grow so that we can become a resourcing church for other churches, but ultimately to see other churches planted out of us. And that's what I want to encourage you to continue praying into as a disciple of Jesus, making disciples. Who can you invite in on this kingdom adventure? And I don't know if you've sensed it, but the prime, uh, this morning was another prime example. The Lord is up to something here. Uh, these last few weeks of worship have just been incredibly wonderful, holy moments with Jesus. His spirit is moving amongst us. And that's not supposed to stay in this room. That's actually supposed to go out and to multiply through your life. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning or you're just dipping your toe into what it means to be part of community here and exploring what community is about, I want to ask you for a bit of grace this morning. And that's because this week... I'm going to be speaking about sowing kingdom seeds, particularly kingdom economics of generosity and finance. And I am well aware that when a pastor stands up or sits down to speak on this topic, there is instantly a whole lot of assumption and baggage that comes with that. Um, Church history has had enough stories of financial corruption to warrant suspicion. That added to the modern culture today of privacy, particularly around finances, uh, means that we don't like to talk about it. Well, we like to talk about other people's money and other people's finances, but we don't want people to talk about our money or our finances. Um, And if I'm honest, that's why I've never spoken about this at length before. I did give a few minutes to it in one little sermon during lockdown a couple of years ago. Um, But out of all the sermons I've preached, I've never once given an entire sermon on this topic. Now to you, that might sound about right. But as someone who is responsible for Uh, discipling this community in the teaching department and following the way of Jesus in the kingdom of God, I clearly haven't provided you with a full teaching of scripture. And I do owe you an apology for that this morning. Um, Since we're trying to grow a church here, I've been hyper aware of not offending people or upsetting anyone. And honestly, that's because I want people to come here and have a good experience and make Centerpoint Vineyard their home and not leave. Um, So we we also haven't wanted to make financial contribution to church financial giving a prerequisite for calling Centerpoint home. You are welcome here regardless of whether you give finances or not. But in doing that, I've also been withholding from us as a church the opportunity to live counterculturally in this, as Ben spoke about a couple of weeks ago, and to grow in biblical generosity. I'm hyper aware of sensitivities around this topic, and so I want to tread somewhat pastorally this morning Uh, but also somewhat unapologetically, if I can, as we speak into this. So please hear my heart in this. This does not come with some ulterior motive. We don't have a massive hole in the budget. We're heading toward bankruptcy or anything like that. Um, Tanner and I are not trying to sneak a secret pay rise behind closed doors. I'm speaking on this topic 
because this topic, perhaps more than any other, has direct spiritual and kingdom implications for us as disciples or followers of Jesus and for us as a church. And this is really ultimately about following the way of Jesus. It's about the powerful connection between our money and possessions and our worship. This is about the wall that often exists between this topic and the freedom that God longs for us to walk in. So I want to ask you this morning, as best you can, Come with open hearts and open minds to be shaped by Scripture this morning. Is that okay? Because if we're to stay true to Scripture and to Jesus' teaching, it's worth noting that Jesus talked about money more than anything else except the kingdom of God. So according to scholars, Jesus' teaching priorities were number one, the kingdom of God, which is, of course, the rule and reign of God. And the vineyard has a strong theology on that. We've talked about that a lot. And number two, money and possessions. And then there's a big jump between number two and everything else that Jesus speaks about. Jesus speaks about money three times more than he spoke about love, seven times more than he spoke about prayer. He talks about money more than heaven, hell, or eternity. As many as 17 of his 39 parables are about money and possessions. The scholarly estimate is that 25% of Jesus' teaching directly concerns money and possessions. And if we're to take Jesus seriously and we're to step into all he has for us as disciples and as a community of Jesus followers, we need to realize there is direct connection between our spiritual lives and how we handle our money and possessions. I'll say that again. There is a direct connection between our spiritual lives and how we handle our money and possessions. So I want to tackle this morning in three parts. It's going to be a bit more of a teach than a preach this morning. I want to give, as best I can in part one, uh, an overview of the Old Testament um, uh, generosity, which was symbolized by the tithe. And then I want to look at the New Testament principle of generosity. And then I want to finish by how we as followers of Jesus can start to view our money and possessions, from, which is different from the surrounding culture. And then we're going to try and land the plane. That sound all right? <laughs> so I've called this morning Kingdom Economics. Firstly, part one, tithing. We first encounter the concept of tithing as a 10% contribution in Abraham's life. So very start of the Old Testament, when he gave a tenth of his war plunder to Melchizedek, who was an earthly sort of king. But if you then jump into the giving of the law to Israel, we see that tithing a tenth to God became part of their economic system in law. So tithing was so that the Levites... Uh, who were a tribe of Israel, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, It was so that they could live because they weren't given an inheritance or part of the land that the rest of Israel divvied up amongst the other 11 tribes. But although the Levites were the recipients of the tithe and the Levites were the the tribe of Israel that helped uh, Israel in their worship to Yahweh in the temple, although they were the recipient of the tithe, the tithe was always viewed as belonging to God. It was holy as part of scripture. So we see this in Leviticus 27. Any tithe from the land, whether from the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And the tithe also became part of an economic system of social justice to provide for those in need. So we see this in Deuteronomy 14. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns. Then the Levite, because he has no portion of the inheritance among you, The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied. 
and the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands. So God built into Israel's law an economic system for looking after those in need. It's a demonstration of God's heart. And there was an associated promise of blessing that rode on obedience. But God also built other forms of deliberate generosity into Israel's law aside from the tithe. And compared to the other nations around them, these were totally countercultural. So our study of uh, the book of Ruth, which we looked at late last year, touched a little bit on this. People weren't supposed to farm to the very edge of their field. So they would sow seeds across their entire field right to the very edge, but they weren't supposed to reap a harvest all the way to the very edge of their field. And that's so uh, that if you were a widow or you're fatherless or you're a foreigner, you could come and you could farm those edges of the field and provide for yourself in that way. Then there was the year of Jubilee. And the idea was that every seven years, all the land would get a complete rest, a Sabbath rest. They wouldn't farm the land. And then every seventh sabbatical, so about every 50 years, all debts were effectively cancelled. All slaves were to be freed and everyone was to return to their family afresh. Totally radical. The ASX completely wiped, completely reset. Mortgages wiped. Israel was supposed to remember that everything they had came from God and that he would continue to look after them. This was radical economic system of deliberate generosity. Then Israel went to the exile and they came back from exile and the, the remnant Judah failed to tithe. And they weren't, therefore they weren't adhering to the law. And so the prophet Malachi spoke this to them in Malachi 3.10. Yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me and they're robbing God. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. So once again, we see a link with blessing. Now, texts like this have often been twisted at times into what can be called a prosperity gospel. And that's where we can think of effectively purchasing a blessing from God by using our finances or tithing. So you want a miracle? We'll put more money into the offering. Do you want to drive a Mercedes Benz? We'll tithe more to the church. But if we land there, we're entirely missing the point. If anything, that theology is just a symptom of our Western worldview that we automatically equate blessing with financial gain. And it's an indication that our hearts are still fixated on greed and we think that we've just figured out a new way to get rich quick but in a pseudo-Christian way. And that theology, it's damaging and it's not what texts like this are actually saying. Yes, there are kingdom economics and a biblical principle of sowing and reaping. And what texts like this are driving at though is that when we're dealing with God, we are always dealing upon trust. Specifically, do we trust him enough to be obedient? Or are we going to try and control things ourselves and use whatever means we have at our disposable to get ahead? See, God is not so much focused on the amount. God is focused on the heart. As I said before, there is direct link between what we do with our wallets and our spiritual life. Money and possessions have always been an incredibly powerful little G God, a false God. Because they promise us a pathway to control, to security, to comfort, to power, things that ultimately come from God. 
But when we learn to trust God with our wallets and view everything we have as coming from him, as the tithe was supposed to remind Israel, we can hold our money and our possessions lightly. Generosity is like a physical way of saying to God, you are my source of strength. You are my safe place. I give control of my life back to you. And there is freedom in that. And that's a freedom that Jesus intends us to walk in. That was the purpose of the, of the tithe, to remind Israel that they were no longer slaves in Egypt and that God is their source of security and identity and he, he can be trusted with everything, with every aspect of their lives, including their sowing and their reaping. Then we jump ahead to New Testament. And when we jump into the New Testament, we've been freed from the demands of the law as an impersonal way of approaching God. So there is no commandment in the New Testament to tie 10% to the church. So you're completely off the hook for that 10%, my friends. <laughs> Enjoy that freedom. But while the New Testament freed us from that legal obligation of the tithe, it actually raises the bar on generosity. And in the Sermon on the Mount, which is possibly Jesus' most famous teaching for the Christian life, he takes what is written in the law and he winds a ratchet up on it. He puts the gas burner underneath it. So, for example, we see in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, that's a lovely thought. What does he mean by treasure? Well, if you jump ahead into verse 24... He's pretty explicit. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Mm -hmm. Pfft, mic drop moment. He's not talking about some lovely metaphorical treasure here. He's literally talking about our material possessions. Our money and our stuff is the biggest threat to living for freely in the kingdom of God. Yeah. It's not your neurosis or your distracted mind or your iPhone or some negative worldly influence. The biggest threat to your heart is your money and your stuff and our constant pursuit for more that the Bible labels as greed. And if we continue to think that we can follow Jesus and ignore that fact, then we're blindly apathetic to the stronghold that this can have on our hearts. So, what do we do? Well, thankfully, Jesus' teaching doesn't just give us the diagnosis to the problem. He actually goes ahead and offers us a pathway towards freedom and to life. And so we see this in Luke 11. Jesus here, a little bit of context, he's speaking to the Pharisees uh, who were outwardly godly, upholding the law, but inwardly, he's saying that their hearts were unclean. So verse 41 but now, as for what is inside of you, so what's in your heart, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean to you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, your rue and all other kinds of garden herbs. So basically, well done. You're upholding the 10% Old Testament tithe. Good stuff. But you neglect justice and the love of God. So Jesus here is making a direct link between generosity and the state of our hearts between what we do with our physical stuff and our spiritual life. They can't be unlinked. They're two sides of the same coin. See what I did there? Uh, yeah. 
So you become a dad and it just sort of like comes out of you. Jesus here is raising the bar on the tithe to a whole life of generosity as a response to the love of God. So if we want to attend to our hearts, we need to attend to what we're doing with our money. The early church took this on board radically. Benj mentioned this when he spoke the other week. We see this in Acts 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work within them all that there were no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone who had need. So the Old Testament tithe is just being obliterated here. They're just living like they don't own anything. Everything they had was God's, and so they were free to give it away. It had very little hold over them. The early church was notorious for being obnoxiously generous. I wonder, is that how people would describe us today? I'm preaching to myself here, but when people think of you and your faith, your following of Jesus, do they automatically equate that with being outrageously generous? Timothy Keller, he wrote a book called Generous Justice, and in it he writes this. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. But the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. And what was the result? Well, the result was revival. It was God was at work powerfully. There seems to be a direct link in scripture between the two. Generosity seems to somehow be intrinsically linked. It's almost like a prerequisite for the movement of God. And that, I think, is because it has to do with worship and trust. Any move of God is almost always preceded by an overflow of generosity. You'll struggle to find, if you read church history, you'll struggle to find an example where that wasn't the case. God always works with people humble enough to trust that he'll catch them on the other side of obedience. And what we see in scripture and examples like Acts 4 in church history is that the things you possess may very well be your greatest opportunity for kingdom fruit. The things you possess may very well be your greatest opportunity for kingdom fruit. So part three, really quickly, what is our response to this? Well, we're contending here at Center Point for a move of God. I was meeting with an older, uh, an older leader from another church last week, and he said, what are you guys doing at Center Point? What, what are you contending for? And I said, we're contending for a move of God. That's what we're doing here in planting this church. We're contending for a move of God. Nice morning tea and a cool looking website won't do that. They won't see the kingdom of God break in in power. It's only by a movement of his Holy Spirit. And part of contending for that is choosing to live radically in a different kingdom, not of this world. It's the upside down kingdom where we don't bow the knee to the lower G gods of our age, but instead we invest in the kingdom of God with freedom and with joy. And if we want to see the spirit move in greater power, then we need to start treating our material wealth like it's nothing more than a rental to be stewarded. I'm not asking you to make a rash decision this morning and sell all your possessions or sell your house and give the money to the church. Although Jesus did actually ask a young guy to do that once. 
I'm asking you to consider with Jesus the potential hold that your money and possessions has on your heart. And for you, what would it look like to live in freedom in the opposite spirit? John Wesley, he was a great revivalist in the UK, in the UK uh, and he was saved as a little boy from a house fire. I think he was about five years old and his family had lost everything. They literally watched their house burn to the ground. And his father, who was a vicar at the time, famously said to his family, let the house go, I'm rich enough. And that so marked John Wesley that later in his life, when he was writing the breadth and the, the width and the, the length of England, spreading the gospel, a distraught man galloped up to him on his horse, shouting, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something's happened. Your house has burned to the ground. And after a short pause, John Wesley looked at him and he said, I don't have a house. I manage a house for the Lord. His house just burned to the ground. That's one less responsibility for me. <laughs> now, is that an extreme response? Culturally, we would say yes. But biblically speaking, that is an entirely appropriate and mature response. What God is wanting you to do with your life, your house, your car, your income, your children, dare I say it, is to sign the deed over to Jesus. Give him the control. Give him the steering wheel. Trust him with all of it. John Wimber, he was the founder of the Vineyard Movement. He once famously said, I'm just loose change in God's pocket. He can spend me how he pleases. And when we have that kingdom view, we can freely and radically live generously. And it's not about any particular percentage of money. This is about the posture of our hearts. In our cultural context, I think there is demonic attachment to our money and possessions, which we break when we choose to give our stuff away. There is a legitimacy, don't hear me saying, don't do unwise things. There is a legitimacy in scripture to rainy day funds, to retirement savings, to planning family holidays, to providing for your family, all of that stuff. Proverbs actually calls that wisdom. It's being a good steward of what God has given you. So there's nothing wrong with those things. Please don't hear me saying that. But we are also called to, called to take Jesus at his word when he says that your heavenly father knows that you need these things and can and will provide for you. There is a difference between prudence or wisdom and fear. We're called to live wise lives in the kingdom of God, but we're not called to live in fear. And if we want to deliberately break the stranglehold that money and power and particularly fear around that has on us and experience the freedom of the kingdom, we need to give our money away in a way that stings us a little bit so that we feel it. Please don't hear this as a rebuke this morning. Um, this is not, that is not my intention. This is an incredibly generous church. Uh, we are so thankful for the seeds financially that have been sown into this church from the, from the beginning, from inside and outside of the church. Um, we've been blown away many times by the outrageous generosity of God's people. So please don't hear this as a rebuke this morning, but do hear it as an invitation. I understand Cost of living is difficult, particularly in this area. Interest rates continue to go up. Believe me, I know. But I also know that there's something that happens in the spiritual realm when we're radically generous and we choose to contribute to the family of God financially. 
Um, I believe something significant happens when everyone contributes something. I think there's spiritual significance in that act. Even if it's just one coffee a week, if that's all that you can carve out in your diligent budget, then give your Friday morning coffee to Jesus and trust him with all of it. It's an act of kingdom generosity and a statement of trust, and it moves God's heart. I, I tentatively want to share a couple of stories this morning. I asked the Lord, and I think it's okay based on the context. Um, when we first began stepping out in obedience and planting this church, uh, I had to resign my, my full-time job. And uh, I decided to start working three days a week as a landscape laborer. And we volunteered, Tanner and I volunteered the rest of our time to get the church off the ground. Um, and we covered any church expense with a 10% tithe of my three days a week, which wasn't much. Um, but Blakely had just been born and Tanya was at home full time with her. Um, but we knew that we were called to this. And so we trusted Jesus. And it was tight and it was at times stressful. But being in that space, gosh, it was amazing seeing the miracles of God come in. Some incre incredible miracles happened that we wouldn't have seen if we weren't living radically. Um, I had to give my laptop back to my old job that I just resigned. It was a work laptop, so I had to buy a new one. And so I went to the Apple store and I bought a new laptop. And that same day, we hadn't even started gathering as a church at that point. That same day, someone transferred into our account almost an exact same amount to cover that laptop. They didn't know that we bought it. They just heard we we're planting a church and they felt like the Lord asked them to donate to kickstart this church. And they gave $33 more than it was the cost of that laptop. <laughs> amazing generosity, but also just amazing, um, an amazing sense for Tanya and I that the Lord is in this. Right. Huge encouragement. And once we'd grown a little bit and people were generously sowing into Centerpoint, we still needed to raise some external funds so that Tanya and I could start to take a little bit of a part-time wage. And I remember we were prayer walking. We were asking the Lord to bring finances in to the Centerpoint account. And we got back to the car and there was a text message on my phone from another pastor in another church. He said, I heard you guys are church planting. We felt like the Lord asked us to support you guys with a monthly contribution. And that very next week, Tanya opened up the church account and someone from outside Centerpoint from a different context had very discreetly made a significant contribution into the account enough that we were able to start to take a part-time wage. <laughs> I even start to, sorry. Tanya calls me on the phone. We're driving in the car and we're literally in tears. It's radical generosity of God's people. And a little while back, um, earlier this year, I was working for this landscape company and my boss told me that he couldn't keep me on because he wanted to bring in a couple more apprentices. Uh, and they were restructuring their team and because I was part-time, he couldn't keep me on. And we just trusted God with that. But that same week, God spoke to one of the team members who, I, to be honest, I still barely know. Um, we, we'd had like one or two chats, like in our whole time working together, we were on different sites. And uh, he wrote me a note and said, the Lord's told me to give you a gift. He didn't know any of the context. The Lord's told me to give you a gift. And it comes with this particular scripture. And it was a scripture that the Lord had spoken to us when we first planted the church. And he made a fairly significant contribution into, into our account. Um, and he is not well off. He, he's a laborer. But he follows Jesus. And it was just radical obedience. And that's, those stories are humbling. But hugely encouraging. Yeah. And I want to tell you these this morning because 
I want to encourage you, you can trust God with your lives. God is behind this church. He has tangibly showed that. And as a church family, there is opportunity for you here to partner with Jesus in writing the story of this church. So that in 10, 20, 30 years time, you can look back and say, look at God, what God did with what we sowed. So I want to finish this morning by inviting you into generosity. Talk to Jesus about how he wants you to use your finances to resource his kingdom, particularly his kingdom work here. If you don't currently give to Centerpoint, even if you're living really tightly, believe me, I know the feeling, pray about what it can look like to start doing that in some small way, even if it's just a small amount like a coffee a week. And just watch what God does with that trust. And if you are already a regular giver, take that to Jesus. Ask him to bless it, multiply it and chat to him about that amount. Is he still wanting you to give that same amount? And then let's together as a family of God contend for a move of God here in this city, not only in prayer, but also in radical trust and in radical generosity. Amen. You've been listening to the Centerpoint Vineyard Podcast. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or by visiting our website, www.centerpointvineyard.org. The theme song for this podcast is Highest Praise by Kieran Delahart. So we see-